decades spending mass focused on alleviating poverty. British public's trust in charities is declining. Funding pressures are increasing. Technologies like blockchain are revolutionising our work. The SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind. Power is shifting to the global south. The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development. Hello and welcome to the Bondcast. In 2015, the UK and 192 other countries signed up to the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. These ambitious goals include a global commitment to end poverty, reduce inequality and address climate breakdown by 2030. The SDGs represent a step forward in their recognition of systemic issues like inequality, peace and justice. On the other hand, some critics say, while the SDGs look good on paper, There has been a lack of concrete action by states or little space for accountability by citizens. In July, the UK government will present its progress on achieving these goals at the UN's high-level political forum. The UK played a central role on the international stage in the development of the goals. However, its focus has declined since then, as highlighted in a recent Bond report on the UK's international contribution to the agenda. But what is the importance of the UK engaging with the SDGs on the international stage? And how can we ensure that it upholds the goal's central principle that the most marginalised should not be left behind? We've brought together three specialists from across the sector to discuss how we as NGOs can drive this agenda forward. First, we have Diane Kingston, OBE, Senior Advisor on Policy and Government Affairs at Frontline AIDS. Hi, Kit. Next, we have Matt Jackson, UK Director of UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund. Hello. And lastly, Kaya Kandika, accountability advocate for the SDGs and PhD student. Hello. So, Kaya, we'll start with you. What is special about the SDG agenda and what is its potential for real change? Well, the SDGs are um, extensive. They cover a lot of ground. I would say that they, to an extent, recognise that social and economic problems of the world are complex and interweaving. But again, that's only to an extent. They do artificially silo the goals and the targets and issues. Um, But for me, as a young person, um, I would say that the SDGs are a good opportunity for activists, for young people to hold their governments to account, to as a tool for advocacy, to where where governments have signed up to the SDGs as a commitment to change. We can tell the governments to do better, to say that they've signed up to a goal of health and better sexual and reproductive healthcare. And within that, even though there isn't an indicator on, say, sexual reproductive education, we can tell the government you have signed up to this commitment. So we want you to do better. Diane, how about you? I would split this question into kind of two halves. So the first, what's special about the SDGs? I'd like to iterate five points one of which is a caveat, and the second half is around its potential for change. So the five points I have are that the SDGs are really special because there was such an extensive consultation period that took place over more than a two-year period. Um, The United Nations were absolutely pivotal in running this consultation, and it happened at a global level, it happened regionally, and it happened nationally through something called My World, which was the polar opposite of what happened with the Millennium Development Goals, which were essentially developed in a vacuum by a very elite group of people. The second is about data and statistics. 
And working in the disability rights sector prior to Frontline AIDS, I had a mantra which was, if you don't count us, us people with disabilities, then we don't count. We're meaningless. And so the fact that the Sustainable Development Goals actually ask for um, the capacity to be built at a national level to collect data and statistics on marginalised and excluded populations is absolutely pivotal. The third point is that the SDGs are interdependent, they're indivisible and they're universal. And recently I wrote a publication called HIV Beyond Goal 3, which demonstrates this really well. It shows that you cannot end AIDS by 2030 by just addressing target 3.3. You have to address multiple sustainable development goals. So as Kia mentioned on sexual reproductive health and rights and sexuality education, for example. The fourth point is the leave no one behind principle. But the caveat is that of the 162 member states that made that political commitment to the sustainable development goals, they are not legally binding. So it is really dependent on the goodwill of the nations to do this. So whether President Trump, for example, will actually commit and do these things, let's see. In terms of its potential for change, I think everyone everywhere has a role to play in reaching these hugely ambitious goals. I think the potential also is that development is actually more sustainable. There are more people that can be potentially lifted out of poverty. And finally, that the voiceless are actually listened to about the future that they want. Matt, to go over to you, from the perspective of international bodies such as UNFPA, what is special about the SDG agenda for you? Well, what makes the SDGs special is that they aim to finish the unfinished business of the MDGs, but also go further, reflecting today's challenges, uh, global challenges, in fact. And as uh, Diane said and Kay said, there was huge input from around the world, the My World Survey, um, but also from youth and citizens in developing these so that the, the SDGs really do touch every individual citizen. And they apply to all countries, and that's also a big change and makes them special compared to the MDGs that wealthier donor countries are committed to delivering on all of the 169 goals and targets. And that potential is really groundbreaking. The SDGs also provide a framework for the United Nations. UN agencies have strategic plans that focus on their specific roles to support achieving the SDGs. Using UNFPA, the organisation I work for, the UN's Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, as an example, we have a number of goals that are specifically relevant to our mandate. For example, goal three on health, five on gender, 10 on reducing inequalities, 16 on peace, justice and strong institutions, and goal 17 on partnerships through the census and data work um, that we do. And as well as these sort of mandate-related connections. There are also strong links to others that we have, such as climate action and, of course, the uh, commitment to ending poverty. And then within that, UN agencies can go even, even further. And for UNFPA, we uh, have 17 of the SDG indicators that are prioritised in our strategic plan. Uh, and that really does focus our efforts on uh, supporting how all governments and all countries can achieve the SDGs. And one of the opportunities for ensuring that is uh, the upcoming high-level political forum, which I mentioned in the introduction. But what is the UN high-level political forum and why is it important? 
The HRBF is a forum for review and appraisal of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. It meets annually to assess progress on a handful of goals. So over a number of years, all the 17 goals are covered. And every four years, such as this year, 2019, it meets to review the implementation of the whole agenda, and that will be in September. Stakeholders and major groups, they're the groupings of NGOs, actively participate in these discussions to ensure that there is transparency, um, as well as advocacy for each of the goals um, that are being reviewed. But beyond that, beyond the meetings that happen in New York, the HLPF can also trigger national meetings with civil society. The data and the reports that are submitted to the political forum can be used at the national level for advocacy, for championing causes, um, but also to encourage that national conversation around achieving the SDGs. Kaya, same question, but in particular, what is the importance of youth voice in meetings like the HLPF? Um, yeah, these kinds of um, platforms and spaces are key opportunities for young people and young activists to get their perspectives and their messages out there, particularly in relation to advocacy on the goals that they feel are relevant to their lives, their experiences, their oppressions. I think what's so interesting is the way that we can use this as a way for young people to hold their governments accountable to what the SDG commitments are. And if we want to include young people in the processes of uh, data monitoring at the national level, we also need to include them at the HLPF as well. And why does it matter that wealthy countries like the UK engage with the SDGs on the international stage? So it would be pretty weird if they didn't, wouldn't it? Yeah, the United Kingdom, it's really important that they engage on the international stage because every country has a role to play. Specifically, countries like the United Kingdom have a uh, a role to play in ensuring and securing safe and peaceful nations. I think a good example of that is the ongoing migration that we see, especially from sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Economic migration in particular um, has been at the forefront of people's minds over the last few years. And the way that the UK can play a role is to ensure that the those countries have the same levels of prosperity and so that they don't feel that they need to migrate away for economic reasons. We also see at Frontline Aids a lot of criminalised populations migrating because they can't access the kind of services they want or that they've actually been thrown out of their families' homes and they've been stigmatised and discriminated against. So LGBT communities are one example uh, sex workers, another, people who use drugs. And those people may be migrating um, and on their journey of migration, if they're people living with HIV, they then can't access the type of medication that they need to suppress their viral loads and keep them um, safe on that journey. I'd agree uh, with that, that yes, the HLPF is a forum for wealthy countries as much as any other countries to have their commitments reviewed. But as the HLPF is also a platform for sharing information, sharing gaps, success stories, challenges, wealthy countries can also use that opportunity to spot where these gaps or challenges could be further funded or where further support could be offered to countries that need it most. Donor countries, like all others, are also critical partners in that global review process, as well as in neg negotiating the political declaration that comes out of um, the high-level political forum itself. And that 
that political declaration is essentially the impetus for action. It's where committed governments um, can use the 2030 Agenda as a vehicle to accelerate action, partnerships and funding as well. The SDGs are quite notable as a mainstream development agenda that's forcing wealthy countries to look internally. So speaking about the UK in a domestic level, um, it's good that we think about the UK as a site of development intervention in itself, that we need to reflect internally on the inequality that we have here in the UK, the economic and social inequality that we have. Um, I think it's important that we look at knowledge sharing and sharing best practice between the global north and the global south to start to break down those sorts of that binary, that divide that we do have going and where mainstream development needs to start thinking about how we deconstruct these kind of old school colonial relations. That's not to say that the SDGs are a decolonial tool. They're definitely not. Um, But it's a good way that we can start to share knowledge and break down those kinds of artificial boundaries that we have and start to look internally Yes, and it does seem that the SDG agenda is, a, is an attempt to at least start breaking that down, that somewhat artificial division between developed and developing. And also just the way that citizens in the UK to think about themselves as global citizens. I know we throw around that term a lot, but the way that, um, especially with the political climate in the UK, we need to think about how we are connected within global networks, that what's happening in the UK Um, is happening around the world and I think for young people who may be a bit upset about what's happening with Brexit that we can think that we can use the SDGs as a way to think that we can work on our political um, enacting political change using a sort of global agenda and if we look at the climate protests happening in schools um, in the UK and around the world that's sort of something that taps into the ethos of the SDGs that wealthy countries need to be sites of change in themselves that are part of a global agenda. And we should be encouraging more and more that platform for sharing the peer reviews that happen so that we can really get into the the detail of what actually works, what actually is going to turn the dial on implementing the SDGs. Yeah, I think that's absolutely critical that um, the UK has just published its voluntary national review on the sustainable development goals. And sadly, there isn't enough self-criticism within that review. Um, And I'd I'd like to build on what Kia said um, about our global footprint. Um, That's something that isn't really touched upon hugely in the Voluntary National Review of the UK. So if you take the example of some of the work the Body Shop have done on supply chains, um, they're selling, for example, banana face packs. And they're looking at what the impact is of the bananas that they source from Costa Rica. Um, when I go into a body shop store and I buy a banana face pack, what's actually happening to the banana production in Costa Rica? Is it sustainable? And what does that mean in terms of the whole global footprint we have? I think um, we also don't pay enough attention, and certainly the UK's report doesn't pay enough attention to addressing policy coherence. And what, what I mean by that is we say in the UK we've we're almost using no fossil fuels anymore. We've really reduced that. And yet we're subsidising the use of fossil fuels in other countries. Um, That came out of a recent review. And I think there's many ways in which the UK can really use this opportunity. I think we can really learn from others. Other countries have submitted some superb reports. They've really engaged citizens. 
um, and non-state actors in putting those reports together. And in fact, Bond has produced an absolutely superb um, report from civil society, from international NGOs, as have the UK's stakeholders for sustainable development. Um, and countries like Finland and Australia uh, should be real tra trailblazer countries in showing the UK what it has to do. In terms of that UK report, I'm really disappointed that there's actually no action plan. Me working in an international NGO, and I've worked in international NGOs most of my career, if I'm asked to put in place a program and I just say, actually, I'm just going to attend this meeting and gather this group of people together and have a chat and so on and so forth, I would not call that an action plan. For me, an action plan is actually a roadmap. It says what I'm going to do over the next three years. It's got a monitoring and evaluation component to it, has a design, it has certain milestones I have to meet. And sadly, the UK is just not giving us that kind of meat. Kaya, how should the UK use this opportunity provided by the HRPF? Well, firstly, the HLPF usually has youth representatives from its governments. Um, the UK hasn't been doing that in recent years, and I would urgently say that they need to uh, reinstate it to have youth representatives there. DFID, in its youth agenda from a few years ago, spoke about the importance of having young people present at the HLPF, having young people um, regularly throughout the voluntary national review, and that hasn't been the case. As a young person, that was one of the members of their voluntary national review this year, um, it, their engagement with young people was minimal. And I would say that um, in terms of the outcomes of that report, they do need to um, work on making their engagement with young people more available and more accessible, particularly where there are so many, there's so many examples of good practice out there beyond what young people are doing in terms of community groups, community networks, uh, small charities and the UK's Voluntary National Review hasn't necessarily reflected on that. And I think that's in part of making sure that they engage with stakeholders um, in a more effective, more accessible way. How do you think that commitment to engage youth or to engage marginalised or left behind communities in general, how can that be advanced in a more meaningful way by the UK in terms of their wider contribution to the SDGs? I would say that when we think about engaging with marginalised people, there's sort of two ways to look at it. There's looking at it from um, experiences and lived experiences of marginalised people. There's looking at collecting data on their lived experiences, their intersecting oppressions, there's disaggregating the data to capture that. But there's also the fact that we need to look at who is it that is leaving people behind? Who is it that is marginalising people? So in a sense, I'm talking about corporations. And I know that we that the private sector is a very valid group and actor within um, the SDG process and data collection and implementation. But um, the SDG agenda itself doesn't necessarily go far enough in regulation, in taxation against um, the kinds of corporations that are the ones that are actually perpetuating economic inequality, environmental degradation. And you can't say that the SDGs are transformative when they're not doing that. Diane, same question on um, how the UK can advance the principle of leave no one behind in its work. For me, this is the most interesting question. And I'd like to really answer it through 
the lens of human rights and and use that as, as an example, if I may. For four years, I was working as the UK's elected member of the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is one of the nine core human rights treaty bodies based in Geneva. And in the run up to a, the adoption of Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals, all of the chairs of the treaty bodies on human rights inputted into the post-2015 um, development framework, which has become the SDGs as we know them today. And yet that principle of human rights and essentially of leaving no one behind um, seems to have been lost or it's been reduced to just talking about exceptionally narrow groups. So the UK's report talks about people with disabilities, it talks about LGBT people, it talks about youth to a certain extent, but it definitely doesn't really talk about some of the most marginalised and excluded people who we can't reach. Um, at Frontline Aids, we try and look at people holistically and look at intersectional and multiple discrimination. And we try and look at that in relation to international cooperation. So we deal with some really sticky subjects. Um, we deal with issues around sex workers. We, um, we look at um, people who use drugs and harm reduction programs. We look at how we can support people who use drugs rather than punish them um, and introduce harm reduction programs. And the UK's report, just does not go to those places. And a lot of people find those types of conversations difficult to have or unpalatable. And yet each of those human rights treaties, and the UK has ratified all of those nine human rights treaties, they have to report every four years on what they're doing. And there are recommendations that are put into place, whether that's child rights or women's rights or economic, social and cultural rights. And almost all of those recommendations refer to the Sustainable Development Goals. And yet that doesn't happen vice versa. We don't see the UK's Voluntary National Review talking about human rights um, treaty bodies. It doesn't talk about what progress it's made over the 30 years of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, for example. And I'd really like to throw it back to the UK government, to Her Majesty's government and say, how are you working with national human rights institutions in Scotland, in Northern Ireland and in England? And how are you actually incorporating international human rights laws and mechanisms in the way that you implement the Sustainable Development Goals? As a wise woman once said, if everyone counts, we should count everyone. Yet it's the most marginalised and vulnerable people, often women and girls, who lack access to the information, the services, uh, the products that um, are needed to lift them out of poverty, provide their independence and empower them and enable them to fulfil their future potential. Um, what I would like to see, um, and this goes for UNFPA colleagues, I'm sure, around the world, is when member states, when countries are talking about how they're delivering the sustainable development goals, is linking that to um, to the, the broader agendas. So, for example, this year, people will be talking a lot about reducing inequalities. I'd like to see countries link that to achieving 
um, the International Conference on Population and Development agenda uh, through the national statements. So how we are getting sexual and reproductive health and rights services and access out to women and girls. We know that there is a lot of pushback on this issue around the world. So countering that by promoting and championing the agenda, I think, is a great way to use this opportunity to really show commitment uh, to delivering for the most marginalised uh, and vulnerable. Um, just to add on to that point, what we've all been speaking about, I guess, is that um, in terms of leaving no one behind, we're speaking about groups like sex workers, like drug users, who just aren't captured at all in the SDG agenda. So how can we effectively capture data on their lives? How can we uh, effectively get funding towards improving their livelihoods? Um, and I think here we kind of have to point out that the SDGs are quite skewed in what kinds of norms that they're espousing, what kinds of people we should be valuing and who is considered marginalised who is considered left behind. So, for example, in the gender equality goal, there's only ever a mention of women and girls, but how can we achieve gender equality if there's no mention of men, of diverse masculinities and femininities, of LGBTQ plus people? That's if Even if we achieved the targets in the gender equality goal, we're not going to achieve gender equality. So we need to think beyond the targets and the indicators of the SDG agenda um, to actually make sure that we don't leave anyone behind. I think that's a, it's a really important point. And something that we struggle with at Frontline AIDS is actually how do you get governments to start collecting data on populations that are criminalised in those countries? So where LGBTIQ plus populations live, where they're criminalised, um, then they won't capture that data. And we need to find a number of other different ways in which we can not just count people, but make sure that their lives are counted and are meaningful and that they're not excluded. In our recent report, which we um, put together with 49 organisations on the UK's implementations of the SDGs globally, we pointed out a number of different areas where we thought that there still needs progress to ensure that we deliver the SDGs by 2030. But can you all give us some recommendations for how you think international NGOs can meaningfully drive this agenda forward? Sure. As a specific example uh, relevant to UNFPA's work, this year, 2019, is an important year. It's 25 years since the Cairo 1994 Conference on uh, the International Convention on Population and Development, ICPD. That's where 179 world leaders first agreed that reproductive rights were a basic human right and that women's empowerment was a prerequisite to achieve sustainable development. A lot of progress has been made in those 25 years, yet there are still millions of women and girls who have not had the promises made in Cairo 1994 fulfilled. So I think INGOs have a, have a big role to play in mobilizing voices, political will, financial commitments, particularly this year as we lead up to a summit in Nairobi in November that the governments of Kenya, Denmark and UNFPA are together hosting to really try and uh, get that collective will um, and commitments to finish the unfinished business of the agenda. There's a lot of great practice out there already from uh, young activists, from civil society groups around the world, um, I think, and they're already working on the SDGs, whether or not they know it, both in the UK and abroad. Um, I think what development organisations, what country, what governments conducting their national, voluntary national reviews um, should be doing and recognising is that there is so much amazing work out there and that we need to support pre-existing groups and 
activists to develop their capacity to hold the governments accountable for the sustainable development goals to ensure that commitments are met um, and to improve our data collection in accordance to the SDGs to make sure that data is disaggregated to capture the most marginalised people. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that International NGOs have an absolutely vital role in playing in holding governments to account, especially when overseas development assistance, say from the United Kingdom, is channeled through the private sector or is spent through other government departments. Very difficult. I think in developing countries, um, we're, as an organisation, Frontline Aid and International NGO, we're supporting national level civil society organisations to also hold their governments to account. So we're working across 36 different countries. But at the same time, it's not fair to say, international NGOs, you go deliver the sustainable development goals. The buck stops with the country and the government of the day to actually deliver that. I think there's a real role for the UK, for example, to build capacity of its partners overseas um, to meaningfully engage. So where the Department for International Development has a country office, say take a country like Zimbabwe, how are they actually working with sex workers? How are they working with the trans community? How are they working with people living with HIV? to ensure that those people are included at a national level when they're reporting on the implementation of the SDGs. The UK is the second largest donor to the Global Fund on fighting AIDS, TB and malaria. And Frontline AIDS, we have a partner organisation in Nigeria who have developed a scorecard on sexual reproductive health and rights where they're looking at the intersection of young women trying to access healthcare and HIV services but they have no idea how to engage on the implementation of the SDGs at a national level. And indeed, there are a number of different national level uh, civil society umbrella groups um, working on the sustainable development goals. But as a small partner, they don't know who to engage with or how to engage with that. When we talk about those most marginalised people in the countries where they're criminalised, we're working with and supporting local community-led organisations, community-based organisations and NGOs to deliver the services that actually help um, reach those sustainable development goal targets. But um, as I mentioned, the bucks doesn't stop with INGOs to deliver that, nor with local organisations. We all own the SDGs, but governments at the end of the day have to step up to the plate and deliver. And let's be frank, we're not currently on track to deliver the SDGs. We need to pick up the pace and we need to find better ways to, to get out there uh, and, to, and to make the changes that we want to see on the ground. Yeah, I think the U UK has a real opportunity here. They could have said they were visionary. They could have said, yes, we have these great innovative ideas of how we're actually going to engage people across the board to help deliver the SDGs. And yet the report that they've produced is really bland. And we have two people who are desperate to have the keys to number 10 Downing Street at the moment. They talk about being entrepreneurs or being great at bringing the country together. And yet the UK has produced a voluntary national review on its implementation that just scratches the surface and doesn't actually say, yes, we're a great nation and this is what we're going to deliver. The HLPF isn't the only fora 
in which the SDGs are reviewed. There are lots of other meetings, events, partnerships, ways where we can challenge what governments are doing to deliver on on the SDGs and really try and push it. So we need to be quite clever and smart in where we pick our battles and where we pick our, our opportunities to celebrate the success of what's been done, but also really try and share that information, as Keir was saying, and really try and um, build these partnerships so that we can do a lot more a lot faster. Thank you all for a really interesting discussion. These are all valuable points to bear in mind as we reach only 11 years to go before 2030. As a sector, we have a key role in ensuring the UK acts proactively and progressively to deliver these potentially transformative goals. Go to the Bond website to read the report I mentioned previously. If you want to hear more about Bond's work on the SDGs, sign up to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate or review us on your chosen podcast platform. Thank you.